Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a pretty interesting founder, you know, a founder that has definitely done it, you know, a few times and full cycle, you name it, and now operating in a very, very regulated space. And I think that we're gonna be learning a lot. A lot about challenges, a lot about failures, successes, lessons learned, you name it. So without further ado, Max Simkov, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thank you for ha- having me, Alejandro. So originally born in Portland, Oregon. So how was life uh, growing up there? Uh, Life in Portland was great, uh, despite what most people are seeing on the news right now uh, about these crazy protests that are going on outside the federal courthouse and, uh, and, um, you know, a a lot of craziness that's going on in the city. It was a, it was a really wonderful place to grow up. Um, As long as you can, as long as you can survive, like, five, six months of rain in a row uh, between November and May every year. Like it, it, the, the rest of the year is beautiful and um, and just a really great city, like great restaurants, great people, close to the outdoors. Um, it was it was a really kind of a sublime place to be. And this business mindset that you have, I mean, was that influenced by perhaps anyone in your family? It's a good question. You know, um, this business in particular, I guess you could say it was indirectly influenced um, by uh, my family, for whatever reason, it, it does have a number of like entrepreneurs. Um, my father uh, was basically shamed into being a doctor by uh, his Jewish parents who, you know, had already selected a, a profession for him, I think, the day that he was born uh, and then, you know, told him over the next 25 years that that was the only thing that was acceptable for him to be. And he, he ultimately did become a doctor, but, you know, funnily enough, like I think he probably had, he had more, he got more enjoyment and found more success in building um, his, his own business of medicine, uh, which ultimately he built, you know, some uh, like standalone um, uh, facilities for doing cardiac catheterizations and like some pretty innovative stuff. Um, so he was an entrepreneur. Um, both of my little brothers are entrepreneurs in their own right. And so like the, to, to answer your question, like, I think what influenced this business in terms of my upbringing is just like, you know, 
always seeing that there was a better way of doing things and that, you know, I learned from my, my dad in particular that like most often when people tell you something can't be done, that's usually the point in time where it's almost, you just make it a challenge, right? Like it's, you get some sick enjoyment out of somebody saying, oh yeah, that can't be done. And you're like, well, I'm going to actually prove that it can't, right? Like you say that problem can't be solved. I will solve it. I will prove you wrong. I hear you. And I know that problem well. So Max, why history? Why did you study history? <laughs> I, why did I study history? I think because I thought it would be interesting, um, which it was. <clears throat> I, I, I look back on the decisions that I made when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old about what to focus on in college um, as it relates to, you know, the rest of my life. And I think they were both at the time not, not, you know, super practical. And also like, I'm super thankful that I did them because they were just like, it was, a, it was about being able to enjoy for one of the last times in my life, the just being completely consumed by learning, you know, and learning things that were, um, that were fascinating. Um, that was, that was the main reason is it, it just seemed like it would be, and I, and I concentrated on modern Asia, um, which I found to be particularly interesting. Um, just especially in the current day, uh, you know, the, the kind of period from late 1920s, early 1930s to present in terms of, um, you know, Chinese history. I thought the, the, the development of Indonesia was super fascinating. Other parts of Southeast Asia, um, Vietnam. Um, anyway, I did it because it was interesting. This is a short, short answer. And talking about interesting, living in a trailer and paying $110 a month. How cool <laughs> is that while you're surfing? So how was that experience like? Yeah, that was like right out of college. I, I, yeah, I moved to Santa Cruz and lived in a trailer park with a couple friends of mine. I think it sounds, you definitely pick the highlights. Like the highlights were surfing a lot. Um, in fact, we, I mean, we were, I don't have this kind of energy anymore, but we would, we would like get up at 5 a.m. and surf before work. And then we work all day and then one of us would pick the other one up from work and we would surf until dark. Um, wow. and which was that, so those are the high points. I mean, the low points were like, the reason my rent was so cheap is we had, you know, three of us were splitting a single trailer. Um, we rotated, you know, we got to take turns and who got the bed. Um, the runner up got to sleep on a desk and, you know, last place was sleeping on the sleeping on the floor uh, of the trailer, which as it happens was not a particularly, um, neither a comfortable place to sleep, nor was it uh, particularly safe. It was, um, I know this is going to sound horrible, but like there were a few nights I remember uh, hearing rodent life uh, uncomfortably close to to where my head was on its pillow. So, <laughs> not exactly the fondest oh memories sleeping on the floor of a trailer in Santa Cruz. <laughs> and then, and then obviously, I mean, great experience there. But then you moved to San Francisco, and and while searching on Chris on Craigslist. Definitely, the um, the spark of really starting something really really came up. So, what was what was that experience like? Yeah, I, I mean, this is you know, talk about a different time. Like, Craigslist was 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 the marketplace for the city at that. This is two thousand three, late two thousand three, early two thousand four. It's like if you needed to find anything, you found it on Craigslist: a job, a sofa, an apartment, right? Um, and I was looking for a job. Uh, I was scanning classified ads on Craigslist. I was working as a temp uh, in customer service just to pay the bills. Um, and there was a posting from uh, two guys who were starting what was called a private equity search fund. Um, basically, the concept is you 
come up with an, an idea of a company you want to go and buy, you get investors to fund the search for that target acquisition with a you know modest amount of money that just covers your expenses. And then when you find it, you acquire that business and you become the management team. Um, and what's crazy is that like most search funds fail. Um, they, they run a search, they don't find a target acquisition or they do, they can't get the deal done. Um, much to our like surprise, ours was successful. Like these two guys that I met on Craigslist, um, we ended up running our own search. We found a healthcare services business that was technology enabled. We bought it for um, a little over $20 million. We, another crazy story, we actually, we raised most of the equity for that acquisition um, in the 45-day exclusivity period uh, between when we signed the term sheet and closed. We didn't. We we had nowhere near enough equity to close the deal when we signed the term sheet. We negotiated the price uh, with the principals of the business, and then we frantically scrambled, um, flying all over the country to raise the rest of the equity. Um, but just really an amazing kind of first-time entrepreneurial experience. And this was a nice segue into your actual first startup. So tell us about how you came up with the idea of Evolve and, and how did you bring it to life? Sure. So <clears throat> that healthcare services business we bought <clears throat> in, um, uh, it was in Chicago. Um, once we started operating the business, I got really close to the hiring process. Um, most of our employees were frontline, uh, entry-level uh uh, primarily hourly workers, uh, again, in a customer service capacity. And I was just shocked by how hard it was to hire lots of people uh, at scale um, and then have them like happy in the job and retained. Like we had a horrible turnover problem um, in that business uh, when we started out upwards of like 150% a year um, in a part of the company, it was like two or 300 people. Um, so just like, Working through the challenges of having to hire lots of people um, and and have high turnover, and then we started using some basic data analytics to solve that problem, and that's what gave me the idea for Evolve. So the the general premise was, can you use better data and analytics uh, in hiring for frontline hourly workers, um, and then see the benefits of of using better data and analytics and what ultimately became true predictive analytics um, by predicting which people will be successful and how long they'll stay before they're hired. And ultimately, you know, Evolve built a software platform to do that. Um, it was sold uh, to large enterprise clients. We had customers like AT&T, uh, Xerox, um, uh, eBay, um, some big companies using our software to hire, in some cases, like, you know, tens of thousands of people a year. Got it. And also prior to the uh, acquisition, also you, you raised quite a bit of money as well, correct? We did. Yeah. Ultimately, we raised, I think, four rounds of venture funding in that business, uh, Lightspeed, Coastal Ventures, GGV Capital, uh, and Vantage Point. Got it. And uh, there's one story that was uh, pretty interesting that I'd like to, to touch on, and that is right before closing the Series A, you had a, a little bit of a shouting match with your co-founder, Jim. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, right. <laughs> My co-founder, Jim Meyerly, who I would just like the record to reflect, is not only one of the most wonderful people in the world, he's actually a much better person than I am. He is still to this day, a very close friend of mine. So um, despite what I'm about to tell you, we, we, you know, things ended up well, but yeah, we were closing our series A with Lightspeed. Um, both Jim and I were first time founders. We had agreed that we would kind of divide and conquer on the closing work for the, for the financing. Uh, I do the legal work, he do the finance work. So 
he built the financial model, finalized the budget, was managing the cap table. Um, I selected the law firm. I um, negotiated all the principal business terms, you know, managed the red lines, going back and forth, what have you. And the night before we're supposed to close, um, Jim and I, it was late at night. Uh, we were in a shared office. Uh, I'll never forget. It was actually in one of the piers in San Francisco. It was in Pier 9. Um, and and like, when I say in the pier, I mean, it was like we sublet the space from like the Longshoremen's Union or something like that. Like it was about as bare bones as it gets. And we're sitting there late at night and um, doing our final closing checklist, making sure everything, the numbers are fit and tied, whatever. And he's like, okay, you know, are the legal docs good? I was like, yep, they're good. And he's like, okay, well, um, I, then I'd like to review them. And I said, uh, what, like, what do you mean review them? And he's like, well, I haven't read them. Like, I want to read all of them and I want to make sure I understand them and I want to see if there's any changes that, that I want made. And I was like, Jim, you, like, there's no, what are you talking about? There's no change. Like, we can't make any changes. Like, that time is gone. I've been managing the back and forth for the past few weeks. I've been keeping you in the loop. I told you where there was material stuff. And he was like, no, I know, but I just haven't read them. Like, let me, and, and then we, yeah, we like got into a screaming match where I was like, you can't do this. You're going to hold up the closing. He's like, you can't tell me I can't read the docs. I was like, I'm not saying you can't read them, but you can, you just can't make any changes. He's like, well, if I can't make any changes, I like, what kind of a partnership is this? Maybe we shouldn't do this. And it was like, you know, at the time you're like 25 years old, you're like screaming at your co-founder. You do. I mean, I, the thought I'm sure crossed Jim's mind and, and mine, you know, in the heat of the moment, we're like, oh my gosh, is this a good idea? Like, um, and then of course, like, you know, we both went home, we got some sleep, we came back into the office the next day and was like, are we good? And yeah, let's like, Jim was like, let's get the doc signed. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so tell us about the acquisition then, because obviously, you know, at one point, Cornerstone really comes in uh, and, uh, and obviously, you know, like they, they, they have some interest and the deal ends up closing. But what was that process like? That was a, um, it was an interesting process. Uh, I remember in it, it was February of 2014, January, February, 2014, um, Cornerstone approached us and said, um, hey, you know, have, have known of you guys think this could be complementary to what we're trying to build um, from a, a talent analytics perspective um, and, you know, would like to talk to you guys about a, at the time, what they called a meaningful combination of the businesses, um, which I later came to learn meant merger. It's funny, like, again, me being super green, I was sitting at lunch with Adam Miller, the, the CEO of Cornerstone. He was like, hey, you know, I think we could potentially do something interesting here. And I was like, oh, like, what did you have in mind? He's like, I think it'd be really great to combine forces. And I was like, like, how? And he was like, he kind of looked at me like I was like a Cretan. He's like, I'm talking about a merger. And I was like, oh, okay, I got it. Yeah, of course. Um, and um, what, what was really frustrating um, and unfortunate was we left that discussion agreeing that um, it, you know, it seemed like a good idea for them to acquire us. Uh, I remember there being some numbers that were socialized afterward that seemed quite attractive. Uh, I got our board on on board with it, um, and then in the period of like two or three weeks after that, when they were starting their diligence, um, if you go back and look at the stock chart for pretty much any enterprise software as a service, publicly traded enterprise software as a service company at the time, um, Workday, Cornerstone. Salesforce, like the market had a massive correction. These businesses went from trading at like, I forget, it was, they were probably trading at like, you know, 10 times forward revenue. And then in a matter of like eight weeks, they were trading at like four or five times forward revenue. 
And and so what happened was like Cornerstone very respectfully came back and said, hey, look, um, we this just doesn't make sense for us right now. We can't do it. Uh, it's not a good idea given what's going on in the broader market, whatever. And it, it and it was it wasn't like hey, we've you know, spent some more time and we think that maybe we need to negotiate on price. They were just like, we're not going to do that. It's not a good idea at all. Now, in the meantime, uh, because they were interested, we had actually, um, we had some other interested folks over the years and we had reached out to them and said, look, you know, there's a transaction that may happen here and um, it would now would be a good time if you're interested to step forward. And so luckily for us, because we'd done that, we had a few other people that we wouldn't have reached out to who were also then starting diligence and then we ultimately ended up getting an offer um, from one of them to acquire the company. And that enabled us to go back to Cornerstone and say, look, you know, it just seemed like you guys were a better partner for us. Um, it, it felt like it would be a good fit, you know, product vision integration wise, like you kind of got to speak now or forever hold your peace. And so they they decided that they would actually in the end um, come forward. And, you know, the terms were different than what we initially talked about, given that the market had changed. But um, it's kind of a bit of a roller coaster. And I guess uh, obviously here you have the opportunity to really see the full cycle you know, with uh, with a business from raising different rounds of financing all the way to closing an acquisition. So I guess what were the let's say the top three lessons that you that you really took away from from the experience with development? Uh, top three lessons: number one, don't invent a market. So for all of you founders out there who think that you're the most visionary, smartest most future forward person because you can see what market is likely to happen when your great idea becomes a reality. I am here to take all of the wind out of your sails and tell you that the market always wins, period. It is the, and I, I'm saying that with the humility of somebody who literally invented a market. Like when we started um, Evolve, there was no such thing as talent analytics. And there is today. And by the way, it's a really attractive market. Uh, you know, guess who ended up footing the bill, uh, you know, and, and not reaping the spoils of being early and right in that equation. It was us. Um, we, you know, we were constantly pushing a rock up a hill and convincing chief human resources officers, COOs, CFOs, hey, you should make more budget to spend money in this category that we're, you know, literally inventing. Um, and, and that was the number one lesson I learned is like, and look to each their own. Like there's there are some amazing founders out there who can invent markets. They're they're truly remarkable. Um, but for me, I, my lesson was like I didn't I did not want to invent a market again. I did not want to go convince people that they needed to transact around a solution that 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 didn't exist to solve a problem that they didn't yet know that they had. Um, it's much better. I think founders are too afraid of competition. I think competition is a fantastic thing because it validates that there's a problem we're solving. Um, and I think I, you know, I shied away from that a bit too much. Um, so that would be the top lesson. I think I, the second important lesson I learned, which is super simple, sounds super basic, but I learned this actually from one of our board members um, at Evolve, uh, a, a partner at Coastal Ventures named David Wyden. And he said it to me at the time, and I remember thinking it was just kind of a silly thing to say, but over the time it's, it's become more and more true, which is as the CEO of startup, your number one job is to make sure that the company doesn't run out of money. Right. And, and like, again, it's like practical advice. A lot of founders are like, well, obviously, like, but I just think a lot of founders miss that. Like they become so focused on like, no, my job is to set the vision or my job is to motivate the people. It's like, no, no, no. Those are your secondary jobs. You don't get to do any of those jobs if the company doesn't have money. 
The company either needs to have money from revenue that it brings in and less its expenses has left over so that you can hire people and build the culture and build the vision, or it needs to have money from external financing. But if you don't have it from either and you're not thinking about that and you're not paranoid about it, companies do actually run out of money. It happens more often than you'd think. People don't want to talk about it. It's horribly um, debilitating for people. I mean, like there are lots and lots of people out there who will never join another startup again because the business ran out of money and they lost their job. Um, and that is that that's your number one job as a CEO is make sure you don't run out of cash. Um, I don't know what the third would be, but I think those first two are probably, you know, the, the most important. Good. Stuff. Definitely powerful, Max. Uh, and then obviously after the acquisition, you did a little bit of vesting and resting at Cornerstone, <laughs> but, uh, but definitely a good, a good segue into your next business. So tell us about, you know, that segue and how, how, how did you, you know, decide to say, Hey, you know, I'm going to go at it again. Yeah. I did. Look, I didn't say it. I didn't, I never thought I was going to start another business. Um, I do. I, I, I am very thankful for, to Cornerstone for allowing me, you know, a, a, a con the configuration of a role, however nebulous of a role it was at the time, that enabled me to um, really be thoughtful about, you know, the kinds of things I wanted to spend my time doing. And I, I kept coming back to this very perplexing and frustrating experience I'd had um, in getting a mortgage um, as a first time home buyer. Uh, I didn't understand this process of closing. So why did I have to go to the like a retail office storefront for a title company and sign hundreds of pages of printed paper documents, like find errors in them, not understand any of the information. And then on top of everything else, pay like thousands of dollars of fees for it. Um, like it seemed like it was a real problem um, and, and a problem of the magnitude where like at thousands of dollars of fees on top of a typical, um, you know, most people who are getting a mortgage uh, they're, they're they're putting a down payment that's you know probably in the tens of thousands of dollars, uh, which is depleting a significant amount of their liquid savings. And so thousands of dollars of fees on top of that meant that if you could remove a lot of that cost and make it you know less frustrating, um, it would it, you know it would probably have a meaningful impact on just the the experience of of owning a home. Um, I was kind of shocked when, and again while I was at Cornerstone in my nights and weekends, I was able to do some research on the market. So learning from my first experience of not inventing a market, I was like hyper sensitive to like, hey, you know, is this a really, does this seem like a really good idea to solve a problem in a pain point that's just not that much of a market? And I was shocked to learn that like the US title and escrow market. So the, the network of companies that's responsible for closing almost quite literally every mortgage that transacts, um, it's $21 billion a year, just in US residential title and closing revenue. And I was shocked even more that like <clears throat> the big at scale incumbent players in the space like were super antiquated in how they were approaching every aspect of the business. There was almost no technology they were using, um, very high barriers to entry. So like lots of like built-in kind of infrastructural moat. Um, and so I got, you know, I went down this positive rabbit hole of like, wow, this is a real problem that needs to be solved. Um, it could make things a lot better. Um, it could be better, cheaper, faster. I think those are the best kinds of businesses. And it's a big market um, with kind of a weird competitive dynamic. Seems like it's, you know, worth worth devoting the rest of my career to solving that problem. 
So then, so then, how essentially? I mean, obviously, the business model perhaps you know has changed a bit because obviously there's a, an acquisition that happened there that you know I wanna I wanna touch uh, you know on a little bit. But just for the people that are that are listening, like, what is really the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, our business model and how we make money is super simple. Uh, our business model is we use machine intelligence to remove most of the friction, frustration, and expense involved in closing a mortgage. Uh, we, we are structured as a title and escrow company. That means we have a title insurance underwriter where we write risk for an insurance policy that establishes clear ownership of the property changing, changing hands. Um, it's required. A title insurance policy is basically required for almost every uh, residential mortgage transaction that takes place in the United States. Um, so we, we write risk as an underwriter and we do that using machine intelligence. Um, we do that algorithmically in an instant to replace what companies have traditionally done manually over a period of days or weeks. Um, and then we also manage the entire closing of the mortgage. So title companies traditionally have done everything from reaching out to the buyer, borrower, seller to set up the closing date and time, uh, setting up the notary, printing the loan docs, getting wet signatures, recording the mortgage, doing all the payoffs, paying the transfer taxes, paying the realtor's commission check, like all that stuff that needs to be done, title companies have done. Um, and we do that stuff as well, except we do it using our machine intelligence platform, uh, better, faster, cheaper. The way that we get paid, again, super simple, um, we get paid per transaction. Uh, it's generally a flat fee for the closing service that we do. Uh, and then uh, the insurance policy is based on a percentage of the transaction price. Um, and generally speaking, you know, like, again, unfortunately, I know it sounds weird for me to say this because it might seem like it's against my capitalist interests uh, as a shareholder in our business. But unfortunately, the fees um, that we are allowed to charge, and I say allowed because it's a highly regulated industry, unfortunately, those fees in many states are still too high. So we're doing our best to bring them down. Um, and I'm very proud that we've been able to do that in a number of places. But, you know, our general premise is charge a lower rate uh, for a solution that is much better, much faster, much more efficient, much more enjoyable customer experience and take market share that way. So, so then tell us a little bit about, you know, this incredible event of a company called States Title with 25 people that acquires another company that is a 170 million revenue company. How the hell did that happen? Yeah, it's a good question. I still ask myself, like, how we were able to pull that off on a pretty regular basis. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell you, getting to know the people at the company that we acquired um, and being able to work more closely with them over the last now year and a half, I'm even more uh, in awe of the fact that we were able to pull it off because we really, um, the, the, the people in the business that we acquired um, have just been incredible and they've driven a massive amount of value for us in accelerating our vision. But the way that this came together is, um, we launched uh, State's Title with an initial product in spring of 2018. Our product was instant underwriting title insurance for uh, refinance transactions. And we started to get um, some real market uh, traction. Start, you know, the, the beginnings of what you call product market fit. Lenders um, using our product, um, seeing value from it. Um, we're starting to produce revenue, you know, starting to build out our, our distribution uh, footprint. And then we confronted some realities in our business that, again, learning from my first uh, time founder experience at Evolve, I don't think I would have realized this as a first time founder. This is a second time founder thing where I was like, okay, the business is getting off the ground. It seems like there's product market fit. What are really the biggest existential barriers to this being a big business really fast? 
right? Like how could we grow this to be an amazing platform at scale to be affecting thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of transactions a month instead of the like, you know, five that we were doing to start. And I'm really proud of, you know, the team at the time when we looked inward, we said, you know, if we're really honest with each other, our biggest barriers to getting there are distribution related, uh, they're capital related, and they're licensure related. We were in the insurance uh, business. Um, we were in the escrow agency business. That's a licensure thing. Like, how can you get licensed across 50 states as fast as possible? Um, it takes a lot of time, especially as an insurance carrier. Um, you know, this company Lemonade just went public. Uh, and I think many people have pointed out that there's a pretty big premium in their stock price right now that's based on the fact that they just did this blitzkrieg to get licensed as a full stack insurance carrier. Um, and we were going through the same process. We realized it would take a lot of time, take a lot of money. Um, when I say a lot of money, I mean, like, we calculated it probably would have taken $50 million um, of additional what's called surplus, literally money we would have had to raise as pure equity and then just put on the balance sheet and not be able to touch in order to get the licensure we needed. And then distribution, when we looked at that, the title industry is complex. Um, there's a lot of local market presence that matters, particularly when it relates to purchase mortgage business. Big lenders don't want to work with you unless you have national scale. And again, when we were really reflective and honest with ourselves, we said, the only way you get over that hurdle is if you have it, right? It, you either do or you don't. It's not like you can't like be building it and talking about how you're going to have it. You just have to have it. And so when we said, well, how would we solve all of those problems all at once? We came up with this idea of like, well, what if we could acquire one of the largest existing title insurance carriers and title agencies in the country? And, and just to put things in perspective, like there really aren't that many of these companies. A, a fully licensed, fully capitalized title insurance carrier with um, a, a, an at scale national title agency, there were, like, there were like six or seven of them that you could buy. And three or four of them are publicly traded companies, multi-billion dollar market cap. Um, one of the limited partners in one of our venture investors uh, is Lennar. Lennar has now become one of our just best partners or one of our largest shareholders. Um, and uh, they have two seats on our board. Um, they happen to own the eighth largest uh, title insurance carrier and national settlement agency. And we approached them and pitched them on this crazy idea where we said, what if we could acquire this business from you? Um, we invest heavily in technology to make it amazing as part of our company. And you guys end up being a minority owner of a company that can get a lot larger, a lot faster um, instead of being, you know, 100% owner of a traditional title business. And thankfully, like they decided to go for it. Uh, so, you know, th there was a lot, a lot more that happened to get the deal done, but that was the general premise. Well, definitely a lot more than happened. And one of those uh, pieces there that happened was you staying with one of the parties that you were negotiating with. So, so tell us that story. Yeah. Yeah. This is a crazy one. Um, so when we were, when we got into negotiating the, the actual economic terms of the deal, which got to be quite complex because we were a startup that was acquiring this large business that was profitable, you know, we needed to structure equity in an interesting way. When our ended up doing a seller note, they basically like loaned us money to buy the company. A lot of complex economic negotiations, some of them quite sensitive. Um, this gentleman who's become, a, again, a close friend of mine um, who's on our board, Eric Fader, um, he was the executive at Lennar who was really driving this deal and, and you know, helping the whole thing happen. And he said, look, you know, getting to a point where we're discussing a lot of complex stuff. And we also just want to we want to feel good about, you know, this is a partnership. Like we're not selling you a business and walking away. Like we're, we're, we're going to be your largest shareholder or going to be on your board. Um, why don't you and 
you know, your your COO uh, who was um, driving a bunch of the uh, deal at the time. Why don't you guys come out and spend some time with me and some other of the exec team at Lennar? Um, let's do that in a you know more informal setting. Uh, you know, let's go. Went and met them this summertime in Colorado. We can go for a hike. We can have dinner together. We can just make sure that we get to know each other and we can start, you know, working through some of these more complex issues. And so um, we went out there. I, I remember we met for dinner with um, Eric, um, uh, with Stuart Miller, who also ended up joining our board. At that time, he had just stepped down as CEO of Lennar and become chairman, exec chairman. Um, and Rick Beckwith, uh, who is the current CEO of, of Lennar. And we all had a great dinner together. And um, somehow we ended up, um, Christopher Morrison, my COO, and I ended up back at, so Eric asked us, he said, you, you can stay with me, right? So we decided, hey, what the heck, we're going to save money. You don't have to you know, spend in a hotel. We'll stay at Eric's house. So we ended up back at Eric's house. It's late at night. And I, I know it's like a common theme now in like some of the, some of these stories, like the one from earlier with the vault, but like, this conversation about these contentious economic terms that, by the way, just for advice purposes for any founder who's negotiating material terms in any deal, um, they should probably never be negotiated after 10 p.m. Uh, in general, like with any counterpart, whether that's your co-founder or like a strategic partner or whatever. But like here it is, it's like two o'clock in the morning. We're back at Eric's house. Um, uh, probably had a little too much to drink as an aside. <laughs> and, um, and we're like screaming at each other. Like, we're like about something I can't even remember now. It's like some term that was like, you know, some economic term. We were like, this is ridiculous. We, we can't do this this way. Like, the, we're ne this is not going to work in the deal. And Eric's, and then finally get to the point where Eric's like, you know, I can't believe you. I even let you guys stay at my house. And we were like, well, do you want us to leave? Like, I guess we could get a hotel. It's two o'clock in the morning. He's like, no, don't do that. But I'm just feel this is like really pissing me off. You guys are like, you're staying at my house. I let you stay at my house. And so like. Christopher and I kind of like, you know, we like slink off to, to like guest bedrooms and go to sleep. And we like woke up, both of us couldn't sleep. We like woke up at 6.30 or something. We come upstairs. And it was another one of these instances where we like sit down at the kitchen table with Eric uh, and he like poured us some coffee and we were like, is everything good here? And he was like, yeah, no, we're good. It's, yeah, we're fine. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So, and, and Max, how much capital have you guys raised to date for state's title? Uh I should probably know this exactly. Two hundred and twenty million ish. And I think and I know. Uh, to, I see two hundred. Yeah, over two hundred and twenty million. So, so the last trench, which was about one hundred and twenty-three million that you guys did. I mean, that recently closed in May. In May mm -hmm. this year. I mean, how yeah. crazy was it to like raise that through a pandemic? Uh, it was definitely. Um, it that was definitely stressful. Um, I, you know. Look, I'm mostly thankful. I think, um, you know, in life, you work hard and then you get some luck. Uh, you like to think that you earn your luck. Um, I certainly was not prescient enough to know, you know, what was going to happen on the macro environment. This, these were conversations that we started having in November timeframe. Um, <clears throat> you know, we added some investors uh, in the winter. Um, uh, Horizons uh, Ventures uh, out of Hong Kong. Uh, Eminence Capital out of New York, um, Hudson Structured Capital Management. Um, and, and actually, that was really smart, I think, uh, on their part in that, you know, that was as things are really, were kind of starting to fall apart. Um, and, you know, we all had conversations about, look, how, how, how much conviction do we have 
that in the in the environment we were likely going to be facing, that this is going to be one of the best businesses out there. Clearly, I had conviction because you know this is my whole life. But what was really um, reassuring was, and look, we didn't know, but we we had a sense that in a world where people needed to go and work remote, um, and you know doing this overused term digital transformation become more important. Our business was it was basically accelerating ten years overnight, right? Like our biggest obstacles, even with the scale that we had and with the customers that we had, big lenders using us, you know, at scale, the things we were still running into were things like, well, they wish they could sign documents digitally, but do they really want to like change their processes? There's some regulatory red tape or whatever, and then like all that stuff disappeared. It was like, we have to do this now. We have to do it for every transaction, and we were the best equipped to enable it. Um, so look, it was definitely. Um, it was a hair-raising time to be closing around, but I do also think that it was, it, you know, like most things in life, like it, 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 in some ways, made even more sense that it was happening at that point in time. It, our industry needs to change, um, and we're the company that's going to change it. And so, you know, I'm fortunate that we got it done when we did. That's amazing. So, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity, Max, of uh, going back in time and having a chat with your younger self. Perhaps that younger Max that was coming out of college and perhaps thinking about maybe like starting something, knowing what you know now after being at it, you know, a few times and you know your your successes, your your failures already learned. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business and why? You know, what's funny. Um, my advice would be do nothing different. Uh, the reason why is I'm not, and this gets to personal preference. I'm not somebody who thinks regret uh is a is a productive um emotion uh i know and that's a very, maybe a very controversial thing to say um everyone has their own personal opinion they're entitled to it um <clears throat> i think regret is a very unproductive and and um in some ways kind of like it's just like and so to answer the question like i i'm i am proud of what i've done i've made a ton of mistakes and and every one of them i think was the right mistake to have made at the right time to help me be who I am. Um, and, you know, everything, you know, knock on wood willing uh, to become a really successful uh, long-term steward of a company that's going to change our industry. Um, and, and I don't think I could have done that if I hadn't have made the mistakes I did in the order I made them doing the things that I did. So I, I'd, I'd go back and tell myself, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a rough ride at times and there's going to be problems and you're going to make mistakes and you'll learn from them. But those are all the right things to do. Don't second guess yourself when you're making those decisions. Got it. I mean, very profound. It's like the butterfly effect. You know, sometimes when you change something, you know, something different that could be even worse open. So so I can get that. So very cool. So so, Max, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, uh, to uh Connect on LinkedIn. Um, send me a. I mean, I, I maybe I shouldn't be saying this because like I do get I get a lot of in mails that are junk. But I, when I get like in mails or connection requests from people that are, you know, relevant in the industry, interested in connecting, I generally accept them. And um, yeah, I mean, reach out directly. Uh, believe it or not, you could fill out a form. You could fill out the you know, I'm interested for them on our website and you'll, you'll get a response within an hour or two. So um, <laughs> those would be the two things I'd say without short of giving out my personal email address. Amazing. Well, Max, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you, Alejandro. It's been great talking to you.
If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.